This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 32. And as you make your way to the 32nd chapter of Job, I want to take some time to put our text back into its context. It was actually in our, uh, our last study. Uh, that's when we considered the conclusion of Job's final argument. And now that we've concluded this section of scripture that includes the debate between Job and his three friends, we're now moving into the final portion of this dialogue section. And, and now we're introduced uh, to a man named Elihu who, who, who presents his point of view. And I should remind you that I, I first made mention of Elihu during the introductory comments of our first study of this book. It was actually during that first study when I pointed out how the authorship of this book, it remains a mystery, and both scholars and students alike have speculated about the identity of the individual who wrote the book of Job. Some believe that it was written by Moses. Others think that King Solomon wrote the original autograph. Uh, you know, the problem, though, with this is that the ancient form of Hebrew that's found in this book seems to suggest that Job was written before the days of Solomon and even before the days of Moses. And many believe that this was written in the days of Abraham, which is probably uh, the same time as Job. And with that being the case, there are those who believe that the book of Job was actually written during the days of Job or shortly, shortly thereafter. And as we consider the words of Elihu, which are found in the next six chapters of this book, well, we must not fail to notice his use of the first person personal pronoun I, which seems to suggest that Elihu might just be the author of this book. We can't say for certain, but regardless of whether Elihu wrote this book or not, we're actually going to spend the next six weeks considering his perspective on the debate that took place between Job and his three friends. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, we're going to contemplate Elihu's argument regarding the spiritual source of true wisdom as we take some time to remember our need for the spiritual wisdom that comes only from the Lord. Well, with this as the focus, you will let's turn our attention now to the beginning of Elihu's first speech, which is found here in Job chapter 32. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here we learn that these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find uh, the first reference in this book to this guy named Elihu. And seeing how uh, there's no mention of this man up until chapter 32, some critics insist that these six chapters that, included, uh, that include four speeches from Elihu were then added later, long after the other chapters of this book had already been written. Now, uh, what is the basis for their argument? Nothing. You know, they, that's what they think. And so, well, okay, uh, that's one opinion. But uh, those critics fail to realize that these chapters are actually a necessary part of this book. These chapters are a necessary part of this book. And as we take the time to examine the four sermons of Elihu, we're going to begin to see how the Lord sent this young man to prepare the hearts of Job and his three friends uh, for the coming rebuke of the Lord that we'll find 
uh, in the final section of this book. But now, before I get too far ahead of myself here, I want to take a, a moment to consider the identity of Elihu. And I should first point out that the name Elihu, it actually means he is my God. Or, or, or you know, it's this idea that El is the God of this individual. It's also interesting to note that Elihu was the son of Barakel, which means God's blessings. The name Barakel also includes the implication of being a blessing, not just blessings from God, but that this person is a blessing to God. And, and so chances are his parents, when, when, this, when he was born, when Barakel was born, they named him God's blessing because they saw uh, this child as a blessing from God, but also were probably hoping that he would be a blessing to God. Uh, as we consider the meanings of both of these names here, it seems to me then that Elihu had been raised in a family of believers who were worshiping the Lord both in spirit and in truth. We also learn that Elihu's father was a Buzite uh, from the family of Ram. And as we consider the genealogy of Ram and Buz, uh, this helps us to see that Elihu was more than likely a nephew of Abraham. And with that being the case, you know, it's easy to believe that this family was well acquainted with the teachings of Abraham. They probably were well aware of the Abrahamic covenant that God made with him. And, and not only that, but we can also be certain that Elihu was also a young man who himself was already walking by faith with the God of Abraham. And this will become more evident as we make our way through the text before us tonight. Now, in order to further make my case about this, let's take a closer look here at verse 2. It's there where we learn that the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. He was upset with Job because Job was spending more of his time justifying himself rather than justifying the Lord. He was arguing for his own innocence while simultaneously continuing to question the reason for why the Lord was punishing him. And as we consider the way that Elihu was willing to challenge Job's perspective, well, there should be no doubt that he was a man of incredible faith. He was a man who was putting the truth of God in front of Job's own defense of himself. And further proof of Elihu's faith can be found in the way that he goes on to challenge Job's three friends here in our text tonight. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 32. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 3. Here we read, Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. Now, here in these verses, we, we learn about the reason for why Elihu remained silent during the, the debate there. And, and, you know, I've wondered, did, did Elihu show up? halfway through the debate, or did he show up at the end of the debate? And, and based on this, it, it seems to me that he showed up there uh, at the beginning of the debate uh, and listened to the whole thing play out. And while he wanted to respond to Job's self-defense, when all was said and done, he was more mad at the three friends for condemning Job, but yet without real just cause. He also recognizes here that he's the youngest man there, and so he was waiting to hear the words of wisdom from his elders, which never came. 
You know, he's waiting to hear wise words, but it was just uh, three wise guys who were just, uh, you know, presenting their opinions. Now, as we consider the way that he patiently waited and listened to the uh, words uh, that came from these elders, you know, uh, it's important for both youth and, you know, young adults to follow in the footsteps of Elihu. I, I think that, you know, youth and young adults should learn this lesson of patiently waiting and listening to those who have more life experience. Sadly, we live, in, uh, we live in a day and an age when every person with a cell phone or, or an iPad uh, you know, can, is just encouraged to just include their input on every comment section that's found at every social media site. And sure enough, if you spend any time reading comment sections on, on these, play, you know, whether it be YouTube or whether it be BitChute or wherever you go, you know, uh, if you go and read the comment sections, I, the majority of it is, is just... I'm trying to find nice words, but it, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's like, some, please somebody take this person's cell phone away. They, they don't know what they're talking about. <clears throat> it's sad to say that there's actually a multitude of users who have no problem exposing their own ignorance as they post their opinions on these platforms. And so listen, if you're prone to posting your opinions, I just encourage you to follow in the footsteps of Elihu by patiently waiting and hearing everything out before you begin sharing your own point of view. The same advice is true for our social circles or small group settings where many people love to just voice their opinions. And listen, if you're a person who loves to jump into the conversation and share your point of view, I just encourage you to consider the example of Elihu, who patiently waited to hear the wisdom uh, of his elders before deciding to present his own two cents. Now listen, if you're always quick to jump into the conversation because you want your own opinion to be heard, I encourage you to consider the wisdom that King Solomon shared in Proverbs chapter 10. It's verse 19 where he declares, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. I don't know about you, but I'm thoroughly convicted right now. But listen, in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. The more you speak, the more likely it is you're going to sin. And therefore, those who will restrain their lips is wise. This reminds me of the modern proverb, which is often stated in this way, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. Christian, listen, before we rush in and present our point of view, we might want to take some time to sit in silence as we patiently and prayerfully make sure that our perspective is actually based on biblical wisdom. We need to really think through our point of view and, and, and try, to, uh, you know, try to think of, of verses that might back it up or verses that might you know, be in conflict with what we might want to share. And if our point of view and our opinion doesn't line up with the word of God, best to not post that in the comment section. Best to not present that in the small group setting. We should also notice that Elihu patiently waited because he wanted to make sure that he understood all of the arguments at hand. You know, he, he, he wanted to listen and consider all the various perspectives before then inserting his own point of view. And I want to consider how the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verses 3 through 5. They put it like this. He was also angry with Job's three friends, for they made God appear to be wrong by their inability to answer Job's arguments. 
Elihu had waited for the others to speak to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that they had no further reply, he spoke out angrily. In other words, Elihu patiently listened to the allegations which were made by the friends of Job, and and he listened to the way that Job then challenged those allegations. He listened to the way that Job responded to the accusations. And and remember, Job asked them to produce proof of their accusations, and yet they couldn't. They had no proof of their accusations against Job. And that's when Elihu realized that these guys have no basis for their condemnations. And so Elihu became furious with Job's three friends for making all of these accusations without any real evidence. Now, in light of Elihu's example, it's important for us to remember that accusations are not guilt of evidence. It's so important for us to remember that. Accusations are not evidence of guilt. Just because somebody makes an accusation doesn't mean that they are telling the truth. It doesn't mean that they know what they're talking about, and they could be completely wrong. Accusations are not evidence of guilt. You see, it's easy to accuse people of anything. And it's sad to say that many people are quick to assume that the accusation is automatically evidence of guilt because why would anybody lie about this? Well, listen, people make up false accusations all the time. That's what the religious leaders of Israel did before they crucified Jesus. They found people who would make false accusations against Christ Jesus. Why would they do that? Well, they had their reasons. They were jealous of Jesus. And listen, people in this day and age will also make false accusations against others. They'll spread you know, this sort of gossip online, and then you read this accusation. Oh, look how guilty this person is. What? Why? Because somebody made an accusation? Be careful. You know, the conservative mindset is that people are innocent until proven guilty. And that's a concept that every Christian ought to embrace that we believe in the innocence of the individual until there's actual proof of guilt. Sadly, there are many lives that have been ruined by false accusations. And one reason why is because in the court of public opinion, well, they're quick to cancel and condemn anyone uh, where an accusation has been made, regardless of the facts. An accusation is made, and the court of public opinion comes in and condemns the person who's accused before there's any real evidence to support the accusation. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to remember that wise counsel uh, would lead us to refrain from condemning someone before the evidence of the accusation is presented. And and I like the way that Paul uh, presented uh, Pastor Timothy uh, with this sort of argument, especially in support of other Christian leaders. It's in First Timothy chapter 5 where Paul declares, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Listen, knowing that the leaders in the church would become the focus of false accusations... Paul encouraged every Christian to remember that you know, every accusation made against any pastor must be established by the testimony of at least two or three witnesses. And if the allegations are established by two or three witnesses, then the pastor ought to be re- uh, publicly rebuked. 
And, and without debate, you know, throughout the church age, there have been many leaders in the church, many pastors who have been guilty of the accusations made against them, and they should be publicly rebuked. But listen, there should be no condemnation of a Christian leader unless there are two or three witnesses to support the accusation being made. And not only is this true of Christian leaders, but this, this ought to be true of every Christian in the church. This principle should not only apply just to elders, but to every believer in our Christian congregation. Listen, if a brother or a sister in Christ comes to you with an accusation against another believer... I encourage you, don't just believe it because you you like the person who's making the accusation. That's not evidence of guilt. Ask them to produce two or three witnesses. Why? Because that's biblical. That's what the scripture says. That every accusation, you know, in this case against an elder, but I would say for everyone, every accusation is established by two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses should be brought forth to substantiate the the accusation. And at the same time, if this person can't produce two or three witnesses to support their accusation, well, then you ought to follow in the footsteps of Elihu by challenging the accuser to stop gossiping until they have two or three witnesses. And instead of coming to you with the accusation, they ought to go to the one they're accusing. That's the biblical model, that if your brother or sister sins against you, you go to them first. You present them with with the accusation to their face and and see if they repent or not. And if they don't, then bring someone else in. In this way, we can protect our church by creating a culture within our Christian congregation which is free from false accusations. Listen, if everyone in our church knows that every accusation is going to be challenged with the question, where are your two or three witnesses, you better believe that false accusations will start dying down You know, because people will know that the minute they bring up a, an accusation, they have to substantiate the, came, uh, the claims with two or three witnesses. That, that's, all, uh, that's the way that, that our church should function when it comes to making accusations against one another. Sadly, you know, there's just a lot of biz, 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 biz going on behind the scenes with a lot of people talking about a lot of other people without any witnesses. Well, listen, if you do that, you're sinning. You're the one sinning against the person you're accusing. So let's be careful with all the accusations and let's make sure that, you know, we actually have other people who have witnessed what we're talking about before we ruin someone's life with false accusations. At the same time, we'd also do well to seek the wisdom of the Lord as we attempt to address those who might be making false accusations. So, you know, if, if, if you, you know, find that somebody's making false accusations against you, how should we go about dealing with that? How should we address those who falsely accuse us? Well, with this as the focus, let's consider Elihu's example, which is found here in Job chapter 32. If you would look with me there, we'll pick up our study at verse 6. Here we learn that Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Now, here in these verses, we find Elihu. He's now launching into the first of his four arguments. And he began by respectfully acknowledging the age gap between himself and his elders. 
In this way, he was demonstrating the fearful respect that elderly people have earned just by virtue of their lived experience. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 16. Uh, It's there where he declares the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. I'd like to bunge phrase this a bit and say maybe the silver-haired chin uh, is, is also a crown of glory. I don't know. I, th- I think it works. But listen, according to Solomon here, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, if. Oh, there's, there's more to it. than just, it's, it's not enough to just have silver hair, right? The silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. What this means is that those who are old are also wise, providing they've traveled the narrow path of the Lord's righteousness. Those who are old are wise if they've been walking by faith with the Lord, according to his truth. At the same time, it's also important for us to realize that a person can be old and yet still unwise. And that's exactly what Elihu was realizing as he listened to Job's counselors. That's right. Uh, The three friends of Job were well advanced in years. I'm sure that they all had silver hair, and yet they weren't that wise. They certainly weren't as wise as they thought they were. You know, it's, it's possible that, you know, they were thinking that, you know, the Gaza Strip shares a border with Mexico and stuff like that, like that just not very wise at all. for this reason that, you know, he begins, Elihu begins his argument by reminding them that, you know, true understanding doesn't come from just many years. No, it also comes from the spirit of our almighty God. Notice again there at the end of verse 8, there Elihu declares, the breath of the almighty gives him understanding. That word breath is translated from a Hebrew word, which in this context refers to the divine inspiration that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. And as we consider the way that Elihu was using this word, we must not fail to realize that the Spirit of God is the source of true wisdom. If you want to know how to deal with those who falsely accuse you, if you want to know how to deal with those who come to you making false accusations against others, if you want to know how to deal with these things, look to the Word of God. Look to the word of the the spirit of God is the source of true wisdom and the spirit of God has given us an instruction manual to give us what we need so that we can make good decisions. And I like the way that Paul explains this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's verses 16 and 17 where he declares, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, when we're talking about the breath of God, we're, uh, you know, God doesn't have bad breath. I, I guarantee you that. And when we learn here that all Scripture is breathed out by God, what, what Paul is saying here is that God has, has, has by his very breath, given us the divine word. And the wisdom that we need to make decisions about about all the things in life, 
The wisdom we need is actually found in the scriptures where uh, we find the, the, the word of God that has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Christian who wants to become a mature believer, the Christian who wants to make sure that we are walking in the wisdom of God, we ought to spend less time sharing our own hot air uh, and, and more time in, in, you know, just receiving the breath that comes from the word of God so that we can gain a greater understanding of the Lord's perfect perspective on everything. With this as the goal, let's continue to consider the corrective words that Elihu presented here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there, uh, we'll, we'll focus again at Job chapter 32. And I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 9 here. Elihu goes on to declare, Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore I say, listen to me, I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Now, here in these verses, we find Elihu, he's helping Job and his friends to realize that a person can be full of years, or what he calls great. So, in other words, you know, they, they could have lived a great long time. They can be full of years, and yet not full of wisdom. It's possible. And it's sad to say that uh, this, uh, this was uh, his conclusion of Job's counselors. They were full of years, but they weren't full of wisdom. They were great men who were, who were full of many years, and yet their arguments against Job were unreasonable and at times irrational. While it's true that you know, a person can be full of years and, and yet not full of wisdom, uh, I also want to consider how a young person can acquire the wisdom of God by simply taking the time to study the Word of God. So while it's true that an old person can also be unwise, a young person can be filled with wisdom, providing they understand what the word of God says. I like the way that the psalmist puts it in the 119th psalm. It's there in verses 98 through 101. That's where the psalmist worships the Lord by declaring, You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. According to the psalmist, those who will spend time studying the scriptures will begin to gain wisdom and understanding that comes not from the mind of men, but from the mind of our omniscient God. And while it's true that we will never be omniscient, you know, a lot of Christians make that mistake of thinking, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to know everything. No, you won't. We will not become omniscient. Omniscient is a quality of God, and we are not God. We will continue to learn in heaven. We will continue to discover more about God, because how long does it take to get to know an infinite God? Eternity. And, and so God is the only one who is omniscient. He is the only one who is all-knowing. But those who study the commandments and the testimonies and the precepts of God's word today, well, in this world, we will continue gaining the sage wisdom that the Lord has revealed through his holy word. And so we should. 
Listen, regardless of whether you're young or you're old, we can all become wise beyond our years by simply walking in the wisdom of the Lord, which has been revealed by the Holy Spirit in his holy word. At the same time, listen, those who are young and those who are old, both can also choose to follow in the foolish ways of this world. That is your choice. If you want to follow after the foolishness of this world and and you want to live like those who are foolish, you can do that. The choice is ours to make, and with that being the case, I encourage you to make sure that you're aligning your lives according to the instructions of God's word so that you can actually walk in true wisdom and make good decisions based on the word of God. Not only that, but we should also be ready to correct those who are presenting others with unbiblical counsel. And listen, this happens all the time, even in the church. And to make my case, I want to consider Elihu's example, which is found here in Job chapter 32. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 14, here Elihu goes on to declare, Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them, and I have waited because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Now here in these verses we find Elihu describing Job's counselors as men who were dismayed by the defense of Job. Rather than responding to Job's arguments with rational retort, they simply sat in silence once they saw that they couldn't uh, you know, outthink his wisdom. And it's for this reason that Elihu focused his first argument on these well-meaning men rather than Job. Rather than dealing with Job and his questions about why God was punishing him and all of that, He decides instead to focus his attention on the three friends of Job who themselves weren't wise enough to realize that their counsel to Job was incorrect. It's not to say that everything they said was wrong. It was just misapplied. It was information that would be, you know, you know, well presented to those who may have been living in sin, but Job wasn't living in sin. So their their counsel was misapplied and therefore incorrect. From this, we can see then that Elihu was a young man who was not only able to identify incorrect counsel, but he was also willing to step in and speak up in order to set the record straight. In the light of his example, I believe that every Christian should not only learn how to recognize unbiblical counsel, but we should also be ready to step in and correct those who are leading others astray with counsel that's actually in conflict with the word of God. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's there where he declares, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil, suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. According to Paul, we ought to challenge those who are leading others astray with unbiblical counsel. 
And if they will not repent of these false teachings that fail to line up with the doctrines of God's word, well, we ought to separate ourselves from them lest we lead others to think that you know, we sign off on their counsel. We have to separate ourselves from them. And in light of these instructions, you know, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I able to recognize unbiblical counsel when I hear it? Do I know enough about God's word to recognize false counsel when I hear it? Am I able to identify the false doctrines espoused by those who are leading others astray? And if so, am I ready to follow in the footsteps of Elihu by challenging those who are misrepresenting the doctrinal truths of God's word. You see, it's not enough to recognize when something is unbiblical. It's not enough to recognize when you hear false counsel. We also have to be ready to step up and challenge it. Christian, listen, we live in a day and age when wolves in sheep's clothing are leading people astray. Paul warned us about these days, and I believe that we are living in the days when wolves in sheep's clothing have come into the church and they're not sparing the flock. And it's sad to say that there are many who are departing from the faith simply because they decided to heed the counsel of deceiving spirits who bring the doctrines of demons. That being the case, you know, it's, it's time for Christians to get equipped so that we can earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We should not only learn how to recognize unbiblical counsel, but we should be ready to step in and correct it when we hear it. With this as the goal, we should consider the way that Elihu took a stand for truth, regardless of how it might have affected his social status. With that, if you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 32. I want to look here at beginning at verse 19 where Elihu declares, Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we, we find Elihu. He's describing the way that he was compelled to correct the counselors of Job. And while it's true that his spirit was provoked within him, you know, uh, and, and while it was true that he was led uh, to, you know, uh, to correct those who were offering incorrect counsel, uh, his flesh was also wrestling with the weakness that led him to want to pull his punches in order to keep the peace. In order to grasp this common conflict, let's take a closer look there at verses 20 and 21. There Elihu declares, I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. And then he says this, let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man. So he's like, I, I got to correct these guys. I've got to say something. And yet at the same time, he's recognizing this tension within him which would lead him to want to show partiality to these guys, even maybe trying to please them with flattery so that he might not you know, feel the rebuke of these elderly gentlemen. And then he goes on to admit in verse 22 that, that, that he doesn't even know how to flatter because he doesn't want to make his maker 
upset. So in other words, he, he ends up falling in, 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 in line with the Lord, recognizing that that's more important to please our creator than it is to be a people pleaser. But Elihu here is sharing this conviction concerning this need, this need that he feels to correct Job's counselors while at the same time praying for courage, that, that the, the courage that he needed to overcome those fleshy temptations that lead us to become people pleasers. And I'm sure we've all experienced this conflict that occurs in our hearts whenever we feel the need to go and challenge another believer. But then when it comes time to correct them, we start pulling our punches because, well, we don't want them to be mad at us. We don't want to break down friendships. We don't want to, you know, lose, uh, uh, lose contact with these people. We don't want them to leave, uh, you know, from our lives. And I have no doubt that we've all struggled with this to some degree or another. With that, I encourage you to remember that We've been called to speak the truth in love. We've been called to speak the truth in love. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the wise words of Warren Wiersbe who once declared this. He says, truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. If if you withhold loving correction because you don't want to lose this friendship... Wiersbe says that's hypocrisy. On the other hand, though, if you come in just guns blazing with all truth and no love, well, that's brutal. That's brutality. And so we need to strike that balance between love and truth. We need to say true words, but in a loving way. When it comes to correcting those who are presenting unbiblical counsel, we must remember that we should present the truth without apology and yet simultaneously making sure that we're being motivated by the love of the Lord so that we can present that truth in a loving way. At the same time, we must also be ready to rebuke those who reject the corrective counsel that comes from God's word. And I like the way that Paul explains it in Romans chapter 16. There he declares this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned And avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there at the church in Rome to to realize that they needed to reject those who are continuing to cause divisions and offenses that are contrary to the doctrines that we find in the in the New Testament epistles. We're not talking about, you know, people who, you know, just don't agree with you on every single little point. You know, if you divide with others just because they don't agree with you on secondary or tertiary issues, you know, that's a you problem. And we should learn to be gracious with those we disagree with on non-essential issues. But when it comes to essential issues and when it comes to you know, the sort of uh, unbiblical counsel that would lead people uh, astray, well, yeah, we ought to step in. We ought to correct those counselors. We ought to rebuke them. And if they don't receive that, if they continue uh, presenting this sort of uh, unbiblical counsel to people within our fellowship of faith, uh, you know, Paul says, hey, Avoid them. They're causing division, so oblige them by dividing from them. And you better believe that this includes those who try to influence us through flattery 
It's been said that flattery will get you everywhere. And, and in some people's lives, it's true. You know, it's, it's real easy for us to just look for the people who will always talk us up and always, you know, tell us that everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. You know, that, that's what we want to hear. And when we find those people who speak those, you know, flattering words to us, we're more susceptible to any false doctrines that they might present us with. This is not to say that everyone who flatters us is a deceiver, but flattery certainly is something that is used in a deceptive way. The false teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing, they have no problem using flattery in order to lead people astray with their doctrines of demons. And it's sad to say that there are many Christians who fall victim to these divisive deceivers and for no other reason than they're really nice and they constantly compliment us. Be careful. You know, when when people start telling me that I'm the best-looking man in the world and that sort of, I just go, no, you're maybe second. Maybe second best, but... When people start flattering us in these sorts of ways, I'm always like, when people go out of their way to to, to speak flattering words to me, when people tell me, oh, the best Bible study I've ever heard, heard," typically that's, a lot of pastors joke that that's the kiss of death. And when when someone comes up to you after church and says, oh, pastor, that was just, you know, they're visiting and just, you're the best pastor ever. You'll never see him again until heaven, right? But listen, there are people who will come into the church with the flattery and, and, and just talking you up and, and making you feel all good and comfortable so that you drop your defenses. Next thing you know, they're beginning to introduce different doctrines to you. Christian, please trust me when I tell you that the servants of Satan love to masquerade as ministers. They love it. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he warns us that false apostles, deceitful workers, are transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. They're false apostles, but they present themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. If you're looking for a deceiver to come in dressed like ice spice, you know, with the upside down cross and making all the devil signs and all these, if that's the kind of deceiver you're looking for, you'll be easily deceived. Be on the lookout for the Taylor Swifts that come in. All nice and bright and shiny and glowy. and Those are the ones who will really deceive you because you're not expecting it. The devil and his demons are not only at work at the satanic temple, but they're in the church. The servants of Satan are at work right here, even in this church. And you better believe that there are deceitful workers who are transforming themselves into the counselors that just want to come alongside of you and present you, you know, with some counsel. 
And in the midst of it, they spread false doctrines in every Christian congregation. The tares have been sown amongst the wheat. You better believe it. And yeah, right here at Calvary South Austin. No doubt about it. And with that being the case, we do well to follow in the footsteps of Elihu, a man who knew the truth of God, a man who was able to see false doctrine. He was able to recognize it when he heard it, and then he was willing to correct it. We ought to become those kind of believers who are not only able to spot the corruption of unbiblical counsel, but we should be ready to correct those who spread corrupt counsel here within our own fellowship of faith. And with this as the goal, I encourage you, let's walk according to the divine wisdom of the Holy Spirit so that we can then help others to walk according to the counsel that we find in God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for how you 